Thank you for that, brother. And Dave sure loves you. He's been waiting for you to come for quite some time. <coughs> Let me say this. I am so grateful for the wonderful spirit y'all have displayed during the several months that we've been down here. I had someone come to me just before this service and said, I'm going to miss this because we've had such an intimate setting with everybody nearby. And, but the good news is the balcony will be open next week. And um, there's a lot of you that are balcony people and y'all have been really lost as to where to sit for the last several months. So we'll have that waiting on us. Let me tell you what we're going to be doing as we go into the future. We have been doing live preaching, uh, same message, but Justin and I have been alternating locations. We're going to continue that. We're not going to be doing uh, messages on the wall, except on special occasions. Uh, I'll be spending two weeks in the traditional and one week in the modern, starting January 8th. And um, that will also enable us to do something I think will be healthy for the church. We'll be able to post our modern service online because... People don't visit a church when they're looking for a church. They visit online first to see if they like what they see. And so that will help people know that we have two styles of worship, and uh, that'll be a, a great result because of that. So we're looking for that in the near future. Today I'm going to be looking at one verse. It'll be on the screen. It's Acts 23, verse 11. The title of my message is, When God Showed Up. When God Showed Up. And we'll look at that. <coughs> Right after we remind each other of the gospel by quoting John 3.16, then join with Christians all over in praying the Lord's Prayer. Let's do that now. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That was my brother-in-law that brought some water then. God bless you, Ken. <laughs> um, Acts 23, 11, let me share this word with you. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. That's an interesting word, have courage. It's one word in the Greek. I cross-referenced it to, to every use it had in the New Testament. It turns out it's only found eight times in the New Testament, and this is the only time in the book of Acts and every other time is in the Gospels. Now, if you have a King James or New King James, it's always translated, be of good cheer. If you have uh, the ESV, everywhere but this passage is translated, take heart. The implication is, is that someone is going through something then or has been going through something for a long time that's just taken the heart out of them. Uh, they, they, they can hardly go on anymore. They feel so low, so spent emotionally, they can't keep going. And so we're going to look at that with that thought in just a minute. But what I want to do before I get to this text in its context, I want to just take you on a journey of three times when this particular word is used in the Gospel of Matthew so you'll understand its impact. In Matthew chapter 9, that's the story of the man who they lowered him on the stretcher, you know, because there was no room to get to see Jesus. And verse 2, just then some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. 
Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, here's the word, have courage, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now that's not what they expected. They expected him to do what he did next, take up your mat and walk. But he started with, your sins are forgiven. Best I can figure is this. Most likely, this man's paralysis was due to some sin in his past. I don't know what it specifically was, but I'll tell you what I've seen in years of ministry. I've met many a person because they were driving drunk, had wrecks, and ended up spending the rest of their life paralyzed as a result of that. So their sin caused their paralysis. I don't know what it was, but must have been a connection. But he was at a low point. Because he had two things working on his soul. Can you imagine how low you'd get if you couldn't walk? If you were paralyzed in that day and time especially? Can you imagine how low you would get if you were haunted by the fact that the reason that you're paralyzed is because some sin that you committed and in all the guilt added to the draining uh, circumstance of, of being paralyzed. So Jesus turns to him and says, take heart. The next time is also found in chapter 9, and that's the story where the woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years, uh, Jesus comes up to her, and this is what he says. He said, have courage, daughter. Your faith has saved you, and the woman was made well from that moment. And, and so here's what you've got. Here's a woman who for 12 years, she's had a constant bleeding. Now, let me explain what, what's, what's really devastating about that. If you were a woman who was bleeding, according to the law of God, you could not enter the temple. You could not enter a synagogue. Now, if you couldn't go to the synagogue, you were a complete social outcast. For 12 years, she'd been sick and weak because of her sickness. But can you imagine missing every marriage, every holiday, uh, every celebration of a new birth, every wedding, every funeral for 12 years? This had gone on so long and she couldn't get better. And literally, it was like the soul was taken out of her. And Jesus looked at her and said, take heart, take heart. Your faith has made you well. The third time was not a lengthy one. The first two we've talked about were people who experienced lengthy things that caused them to lose their heart. But the third time was when Jesus sent them out in the boat and said, now go on, boys, I'm going to pray. And then a huge storm came. Do you remember that? And all of a sudden, in the midst of having a storm, and these are professional fishermen who were convinced they were about to drown. Now, that'll take the heart out of you. But then they looked up and they saw somebody walking on the water. And so Jesus looked at them in Matthew 14, verse 27. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them and said, Have courage. Take heart. It is I. Don't be afraid. Now, let me give you some summary of truths I can get to you from these passages. Number one. Christians often reach emotionally low points in their life where they have no heart and no courage to go on. Did you hear that? Christians often reach low points in their lives where they have no courage and no heart to go on. Now, Paul will talk about something that happened in his life that took the wind out of his soul too. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. He said, I don't, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction that took place in Asia we were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Something happened in Ephesus. He said, I, I, we need to let you know. I didn't know if I could go on living because that, that trial was so hard. He had the wind taken out of his life. He was at that low point. We get there, folks. Understand that. 
But second truth I want to give you is this. When we get low, God does not want us to stay there. God will give us grace and his promises so we can take heart again. God has a way of showing up to pull us out of those low moments. Now, Paul experienced it here. Uh, You think about this. Two days before this encounter with God, when God showed up, two days before this, he was free. He'd made plans as a missionary to drop off some money in Jerusalem and then go on to Spain and do some more work at uh, telling people about Jesus who'd never heard about him. And then they lied about him. They tried to kill him. He's now arrested. He didn't know, but he would spend the next five years as a prisoner. But can you imagine if your life had been so upturned upside down in such a quick time? Don't you imagine you would be low? And at that moment, when he's that low, God showed up. Take heart. Be, be courageous, Paul. You, what you've done here in Jerusalem, you're going to do in Rome. You're going to testify for me. Now, with that said, I want to share with you my story. Uh, I had the privilege of being in a church in Loganville, Georgia for five and a half years, and we loved them, and they loved us, and we grew from 150 to 450 and thought we'd be there for a long time. We were there five and a half years, but thought we'd be there for a long time when we were contacted by a church, and it was a church that I knew had troubles. Uh, I checked into the church after they'd contacted me, and I found out that over the previous five years, they had fired one staff person a year. Now, that's a sign that something's wrong if they're firing people on staff. They'd been in a decline for several years. They had set the record four years before that for baptisms in the state of Georgia. Four years before I became their pastor, they had baptized 550 in one year. But shortly after I arrived, I heard one of the older deacons say this, don't ever bring up the fact that we baptized 550 because four years later, not one is still in the church. There was something missing in their evangelism. They would get them in the water, but they couldn't keep them. Um... Well, they called me, and I knew without a doubt that I was supposed to go. But even though I was in a church that had grown to 450, the church might have grown in numbers, but we had not grown in structure. By the time I left Loganville, I only had one other full-time person. That was a youth minister, and we had one part-time secretary who worked to noon, and I had a part-time minister of music. And, And so that's all we had. All of a sudden, I was called to a church that had five full-time secretaries, five full-time ministers, and in 1987, a million-dollar budget. And I'll be honest with you. I was thrown in over my head. I didn't know how to pastor a church that large, that structured, and in trying to juggle things the first few weeks, I blew it. I'll be honest with you. There were two families that I did not stand by the way that I should, and they never forgave me for that simply because I felt so overwhelmed and didn't know how in the world to react in that situation. One of those happened to be the chairman of the deacons, and he never forgave me, and from that moment on, he wanted to see me gone from the church. The previous pastor, as you can tell by the number of baptisms, was very evangelistic. Almost every sermon, he presented the gospel and urged people to come forward and get baptized. So what happened is he preached constantly how to get to heaven, how to be saved. But when I went to my first deacons meeting, I found that three of the 12 deacons had separated from their wives. And what that told me was they knew how to get to heaven, but didn't know what in the world to do between now and then. They hadn't been given practical Christian teaching. So seeing that in my deacon body, I felt led of God. I approached a godly doctor in the church 
And we decided to do something to address this need of strengthening marriages. So the doctor and his wife, Karen and I, we, we, would, we, we set up a seminar that would happen one hour before the Sunday night service for adults only. There were four chairs. We'd sit up at the front. We did it in a forum-type setting. And so we addressed five issues in marriage. The first week was on the role of the husband. The second week was on the role of the wife. The third week was on parenting. The fourth week was on finances. And the fifth week was going to be on the sexual relationship in marriage. And I did what any preacher should do. I punted and let the doctor have that one. (laughs) Well, just before we were to start that fifth session, there's a guy who... I only can describe him as spooky. He was single, divorced. He'd been one of the best friends of the previous pastor. But he came up to me just before he began. He said, are you going to condemn? And he named two specific sexual actions. And it took me off guard. And I looked at him and said, well, first of all, I've got to let you know I'm not doing this when the doctor's doing it. I said, but I don't think he'll do that because our goal is to share from the Bible what the Bible positively teaches on all these subjects, including the sexual relationship and marriage. And after all, Ephesians 4 says we're not even to speak of the things done in the dark. He said, well, you need to know we have members that are doing those things. And my first thought was, is he looking in their windows? How does he know? That just was kind of creepy. Well, here I am pouring myself into this church. I mean, I've never given myself more than I'd given it. Two months into there, I walked into my office, and there sitting on my desk was a typed anonymous letter. The first words, the glory of God has departed from our church. The word of God is no longer being preached. And we have a pastor who condones. And those two specific actions were then listed. Now, what you need to know, folks, is this. That's the kind of accusation that can get a man out of the ministry. There have only been twice when in the ministry I cried for myself over the ministry in self-pity. That was one of those moments. I had been given so much out, and then to see that, I just stopped and wept at my desk. And then I found out that 120 of our leaders had received that letter in the mail. It was devastating but he didn't sign it and he never admitted, he would never admit that he wrote it about two weeks later. Now this, let me tell you, he would sit on the front row. His arms were folded. He would stare daggers at me while I preached and his hand would only move if he thought I was saying heresy so he could take a note. About two weeks later, Another letter came out. The word of God is not preached. Our pastor is teaching so many false things. And then he started taking sentences out of my sermons out of context and saying he's a false teacher. When I read that, I thought I was a false teacher. I mean, I agree. I mean, he just, just took things out of context. And then he said, it's time that we rise up and fire this man. Well, I thought, what do I do? You know, you really can't do church discipline if there's an anonymous letter and it's not absolutely provable. As I was struggling with what to do, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and brought to my attention, to my mind, Ephesians chapter 6. It says, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We're wrestling with principalities and powers, spiritual forces in dark places. And God reminded me that no one with skin on is my enemy. That what was happening is Satan was trying to destroy my life and Satan was trying to destroy the church and the, and that what we needed to do was then therefore to take spiritual action. 
So the next Sunday, I went to the pulpit and I read Ephesians 6. And I said, now, we have a troubled member who's been sending out letters to many of you. But I want to tell you something. He is not the problem. Satan is trying to destroy this church. So here's what I want you to know. If you ever receive another letter, know that on the day that you receive that letter, there will be a special called prayer meeting at 7 o'clock that night at the church. If the devil wants to call prayer meetings, he can. That next week, a third letter went out. We had a huge group showed up. We had a wonderful prayer time at the church, and there was never another letter. But he still sat on the front row. He still stared daggers. That was two months into that church, four months into that church. The pastor moderated the business meetings. Don't you love our peaceful business meetings that we have here? I praise God for that. But I was standing there in the business meeting when we had what I'd only heard about before. Occasionally you hear about churches having business meetings where it explodes in anger. And that's what happened that night. People began yelling at each other, and then they started yelling at me. And this went on. I couldn't get control of it for over half an hour. And the only way it ended was finally one of the godly men in the church stood up and said, we're doing no good here. I make a motion that we adjourn. And everybody just walked out. Nothing resolved. That night I went home. And for the first time in my life, I was gripped with clinical depression. Uh, not, not just low, I mean clinical depression. I couldn't sleep that night. I couldn't sleep for days. I couldn't eat. You know something's wrong if I can't eat. I couldn't eat. I, I didn't want to leave the house. On Friday, Karen asked me to go to the grocery store. I got in my car, went to the grocery store, saw a member before I got out of the car, and then just drove right back home because I didn't want to interrupt. I, that, I, there was nothing left in my heart. But sadly... That weekend, a couple we had led to Christ in our Oklahoma church, uh, they had been divorced. We led them to Jesus and we helped them remarry. And they were doing wonderfully. And so they had set up some time ago that they were going to come that weekend to spend that weekend with us on their vacation. So they arrived on Friday night. And my wife, who is such a wonderful, gracious person, she smiled, she entertained them. But all I could do was sit in my chair. I couldn't even talk. I was a lump in the chair. So Friday night went by. Saturday morning woke up. Karen was as pleasant as anybody could ever be. I just sat there as a lump. Saturday afternoon, I turned to them and I turned to Karen and I said, I'm doing no good here. I'm leaving. And I went into the sanctuary. And I stopped and I said, God, I don't want to live anymore. I want to die. Now, there are times you hear God, not audibly, but it's louder. And what I heard God say when I, made, when I prayed that prayer, he said, okay, Scoggins, you're dead. Write it down. Steve Scoggins dies today. It doesn't matter what they say about a dead man. It doesn't matter what they do to a dead man. You just count on it. Reckon on this. You are dead from this moment on. And all of a sudden, I received a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it was incredible. God showed up when I was at that low point. The next morning, I got there early, and it was standing in the parking lot. And when people drove up, I said, you're going to tell your grandkids about today. And when I preached, God's Spirit was poured out, and the altar was as full as it could be. Didn't count, but I know it was many, many people that were on their knees before God. And you've got to understand that the people 
from that moment on, did not know that I had some leaders trying to end my ministry. When they came to the services, they felt blessings. They were encouraged by the word. They could feel the spirit of God in our place. We, we had 1,400 people join in those five years that I was there. Uh, but the whole time, just because I got that word from God did not mean that things changed. By the way, they didn't change for Paul either. It got worse after that. I had two men on the deacon board that sometimes I was stunned that Christians could act the way they acted. And I would literally get sick on the Mondays that deacons meeting was to be held. And that went on the entire time that I was in that church. But God still moved and God still blessed. I learned three lessons in that hard place. And I want to share those with you right now. The first lesson I learned was I learned how to walk by faith and not by emotions. I learned how to walk by faith and not by emotions. And brothers and sisters, every one of us had better learn how to do that. You don't stay home because you don't feel like going out. If God said, you go. And I can say this, even though it never got easier in the five years after that explosion, I was faithful before God. I stood by everybody I should have stood by. I preached the word of God. I was there as a pastor as I should have been, but sometimes I didn't want to be there. But I walked by faith and not by emotions, and that's a lesson we've all got to learn. Secondly, I fought a hard-fought battle to overcome the temptation to be bitter. <sighs> Let me tell you what's really deceitful about the sin of bitterness. People get bitter because they really have been done wrong. There were times when I, when I would sit still for a minute, all I could do was think about what those men were doing. And, and I had one time I had to pause and say, God, I've thought about them more than I've thought about you. Please forgive me. And I had to learn through going through that, that rough time. The root meaning of the Greek word forgive, aphime, means this, to let it go. And I had to learn how to let it go and go on. But the third thing that happened, and Karen, when I was talking through this sermon with Karen, she brought this out. God put a brokenness into my life in that church that wasn't there before. Now, let me explain. Before that church, I had lived a charmed life in the ministry. Every church had exploded. Things went well. The churches had loved us. This was the first time we had an experience like that. Since that time, it seems like God is constantly sending me pastors who are going through rough times. And I can, with a broken heart, put my arm around him and say, I know what you're going through, brother. Now, on these points, let me say this. I, I would be lying to you if I said that's the last time I lost heart. Now, I have been so blessed because the lessons I learned there, lessons on how you pastor a larger church, lessons on how you handle things like that, were a great blessing to me because my very next church was First Baptist Hendersonville. And then we went to Opelika, and now we've come back. And so I believe that God has used that in my life to make me a better pastor. But can I say this? Even though I've been so blessed in my relationship with y'all, there's still been Sundays when specifically things happen in my family life. I didn't want to be here. I don't want to preach. But I've learned to walk by faith and not by emotions. 
Because I know this, when I am low, God is somehow going to show up and say, take heart. Now let me close with one more time in the Gospels that Jesus used this word. It's in John 16, 33. I told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in the world. Write that down. Nobody gets to live without having the wind taken out of them. But be courageous. Take heart. I've overcome the world. And God wanted you here today so he could say to you personally, take heart. Will you pray with me about that? Oh, Lord, this is your children sitting before you, listening online. Many of them are going through hard times. I pray you put your arm around them. I pray you be merciful, pour out mercy. I pray they would hear your voice and that they would take heart. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.